Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 to 21. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am proclaiming as you hear them today. Learn and follow them carefully. The Lord our God made the covenant with us at Horeb. He didn't make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and didn't go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, any of your livestock or the resident alien who lives within your city gates, so that your, your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Remember uh, that you, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That's why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and so that you may prosper in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give dishonest testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or desire neighbor's house, his field, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Mike Hasty, uh, lead pastor here at Tungabi Anglican. Let me pop to the next. There we go. I'll come back to that in a second, actually. Ah, that's annoying. There's not a 
It's not that there was an in-between slide. Anyway, whatever. Um, great start. Uh, and if you're new online or in the building, it's great to have you with us today. We come to a very famous part of the Old Testament uh, and a very famous part of the center of Deuteronomy itself. Uh, it essentially looks at the Ten Commandments, those ten words that God gives us uh, to point towards life, to protect us uh, from that which uh, diminishes life, that we might find life in God. Now, I, um, I, I spoke, uh, I spoke, I typed into uh, ChatGPT, which is kind of, you know, the latest fad in AI stuff, uh, to ask for ten commandments for modern life, and this is what I got. What are ten modern commands for the good life today? And within like a couple of seconds, up comes 10 commands. And uh, yes, prioritize self-care, that's great. Um, uh, embrace continuous learning, that's an AI kind of thing, isn't it? Uh, practice gratitude, foster authentic relationships, embrace diversity and inclusion, pursue passion and purpose, cultivate resilience, practice mindfulness, contribute to the community and seek balance. I mean, they're all pretty good things, right? None of these are things you'd be like, that's, that's a bad commandment. Uh, they are good things. I like the bit at the end where it says, you know, adapt them to your own values and circumstances. Uh, the pursuit of a good life is a personal journey, and these principles can help you navigate that path. Thank you, ChatGPT. Uh, now, before we hand over our lives to AI, in case you were thinking of doing that, that's a bad idea, I might add, uh, all is not well in paradise. Um, this little uh, pic or tweet this week uh, noted that an uh, AI-generated photo of the Pentagon on fire actually wiped billions off the stock market for a couple of hours. So let's just be careful with AI. But uh, it, does, it does kind of, you know, like maybe art and kind of some of this fancy stuff, it does reflect back to us kind of life as we know it. I mean, it's just hoovering up all the information that's on the net and, uh, and sort of pointing us back to uh, what we uh, already sort of hold to in a way and maybe even pointing towards a trajectory of where that's headed. But with all this kind of stuff that we're being exposed to, I get the feeling sometimes that the modern life, as kind of fanciful and interesting as it is, is just flimsy, like really thin and shallow, like it doesn't take much to unravel. Where are words that we can actually believe in wholeheartedly, build our lives upon? What is the good life that we can invest in? Of all the words and chatter and banter and emojis that are thrown around in this modern life, where are the words that are matched with action, words that reveal truth, love and goodness? Well, enter Moses. Moses was certainly a great leader. He was a leader with power, although he started quite timidly, didn't he? You know, he's the guy that said to kind of one of the greatest and most powerful people in the known world, to Pharaoh, let our people go, or there'll be gnats, or blood, or darkness, and even death, as Pharaoh rebelled against God. Moses spoke silent power, with arms raised up and the Red Sea split. At Sinai, he spoke with the Lord Almighty and received those two tablets with the Ten Commandments written on it. Moses was a guy who was revered, a judge of judges, a pastoral leader, a warrior of faith, a man who walked with God. And a guy who gave his beloved people these words of life that we have today. But of course, they weren't received well, were they? We'll come to that. Moses is pleading, God is pleading that we would listen to and live out words that bring life. 
Now, when we come to this idea of words that bring life, I mean, it's interesting to think our modern reactivity to commandments, they feel like they bring death. You know, like when there's rules and you're like, oh, rules are boring. Uh, that's what my kids tell me anyway. Um, there's all these kinds of like almost, you know, thou shall not. How, how does thou shall not bring life? Well, you can think about it on, uh, you know, from a playground perspective, you know, that you say to your kids, like, you know, he, there's the fence, you can't go over the fence, you can play in there and don't hit Billy on the head. You know, like, that, that within those kind of limitations, there is a lot of freedom to enjoy good life and those restrictions are there for good reasons because hitting people doesn't bring life and also crossing the fence will lead to a busy road and whatnot, right? And so there's all kinds of variations of that theme for us as adults as well. But I just want you to get the picture here that these words, even though they are commandments, actually do point to freedom and life and obviously they will also point for us to Jesus who fully, fully embodied them and fully gives us life. Now, these, um, these Ten Commandments are some of the, if not the, most profound ethical code in all of history. It has outlived every other ethical code through history and other religions uh, and if you don't believe me, take it from this German philosopher and atheist, German, uh, sorry, Jürgen Habermas, who writes this, the ideals of freedom, he writes this actually talking specifically about Ten Commandments, the ideals of freedom and a collective life in solidarity, the autonomous conduct of life and emancipation, again, these ideas of freedom, the individual morality of conscience, human rights and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethics of justice and the Christian ethic of love. To this day, there is no alternative to it. We continue to draw on the substance of, its, of this heritage. Everything else is just idle, postmodern talk. What a fascinating comment from an atheist, reflecting on the Judaic uh, Christian heritage that we have. And so as we look at these very famous commandments, let us draw upon them to find life, and words of substance, words we can build a life upon. Are you keen? Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> let's have a look. We've got 10, it's a 10 point sermon. How good's that? Okay. We're going we're to go through each of these commandments. Some of them we'll spend a little bit more time in, and some of them we'll just whiz through because there is 10 of them, uh, and I want you to go home for lunch. Um, so let's begin. Uh, now, the first thing to note here is that the, it begins with, I am the Lord your God. This is verse 6. I am the Lord your God, and before we, uh, yeah, but I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Now, it's critical we, we sort of appreciate that this is the first statement. Uh, it's not just kind of like, do this, do this, do this, and then, oh, then you can hang out with me. That then you'll be saved. Then, then you'll have good things. First and foremost, God says, I am the Lord your God. And because I am a God who cares, who loves, who has mercy, who seeks justice, I brought you up out of the slavery that you're experiencing. I heard your cries and I raised up Moses to bring you out of that place and toward the land that I have promised you because I am the Lord your God. Salvation in God begins with grace. His grace, His love for us, and His leading. And so then everything that comes after that is not just the, what do I do to be saved? It's actually, no, how do I live because I am saved? That's even in the Old Testament, before Jesus radicalized grace and forgiveness. This is how God works. And that, in and of itself, gives us great refuge and comfort 
and stability. And then out of that, we get the first commandment. Number one, do not have other gods besides me. Uh, Israel, us and all of humanity share one thing in common. There are thousands, millions of things competing for our attention to satisfy us. That is a human condition thing. That's not just a 2023 thing. It is a human thing. Whether it be Baal from, you know, the ancient gods or power or career or sex approval or paying off your mortgage or whatever it might be, there are things crowding for our attention to bring us satisfaction and how often we give ourselves to those things, right? But commandment one establishes a truth and makes a demand. There is only one God and He is the basis of all that is good, put nothing ahead of Him. That's commandment one. There is only one God, He is the basis of all that is good and put nothing ahead of Him. There is no one else, no other thing that will save, as we've just talked about from verse 6. And yet this command straight away reveals our wandering heart. Our heart is like an idle factory. As we chase down our hopes and pursue the dreams, we become enslaved to our desires. Israel are being called back to see how God is God, to see how He's already moved in their midst, how He's already brought them out of Egypt. They're being reminded that He is the source of every good thing and that God is the only one worthy of worship. And when you start with commandment one, everything flows from there. And that's actually a huge thing because if we went back to ChatGPT or any other arbitrary list of kind of 10 things that, you know, commandments that you should live to get, you know, to the good life, that there's no logical depth to them. Two atheists could stand side by side and have a completely 10 different lists, right? And, and what kind of ground or framework do they have to kind of share, this is the way you should live or that the way you should live? Whereas the Judeo-Christian ethic says, it begins with God, His character, how He's revealed Himself in history, how He's been able to deliver people towards the good life, and we're asked to trust Him. There is a logical coherence, a depth, a foundation for us. We will be devoted to Him. Commandment number two uh, starts well and then gets a bit scary, right? We'll come to that. Okay, you shall not make for yourself an image of me is the second commandment. Now, if God is personal, powerful, dynamic, it makes no sense to kind of shrink Him down to a trinket. (laughs) And again, it is a very human thing. Throughout the ages, uh, humanity have loved the idea of kind of putting an idol on your shelf just to remind you that God is there. I mean, it didn't even take long for Israel to send Moses up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments for them to go, oh, it's been a long time, let's boil down all our, melt down all our gold and uh, make a cow and say, that's our God. That's literally what happened. That's crazy talk, except that's just a picture of what we all do day in, day out in different kinds of ways. We love to have before us a sense of, I don't know, something that we lay our lives down before. Now, if I, um, I've been married for just over 20 years now. If I, um, if I stopped talking to my wife and stopped sort of, you know, meeting her face to face, but I carried around a little trinket, or maybe even just a photo, right? What do you think would happen to my marriage? Wouldn't be very kind of, I don't know, interesting, fresh, live. Um, it would be static, dead. There'd be no sense of relationship. The living God is calling Israel to be in relationship with Him. 
And He does not want, He forbids them to shrink His power, His dynamic nature, His living presence down to a dead, inanimate thing. Our world has stopped listening and to God and, and just has mere opinions of Him. He's the one that hates gays or He loves everyone or He's angry with everyone or He's just another fairy tale. All of these are just static interpretations of God. He is the living God. Israel couldn't go on the mountain when Moses received the commands because it was holy and they weren't worthy. He is the living, holy God. Where are we going, they said in the desert. Well, they were led by a pillar of fire and cloud. He is the living God. When Jesus came as the living God, He was told, you can't eat with sinners. He said, watch me. (laughs) You can't box in the living God. And so let us stop putting things before us that are versions of Him and, and, and lean into our personal living relationship with Him. Now, for Israel, this was kind of scary, I think. It's actually much simpler and it's a nicer thing to sort of domesticate God down to something that you can control. But as soon as you do that, you've lost sight of the living God. And I think because of this, this, this kind of commandment kind of blows out. Because as we heard last week, God is a jealous God. And not kind of like a, I don't know, an emotionally immature, kind of, you know, erratic kind of jealousy. That'd be wild but a God who loves so significantly that should you betray Him, as He calls you into a relationship with Himself, He deeply cares about that. And I want a God that loves like that, that cares deeply and intimately. Now, the bit that goes on to say uh, how God will punish... uh, Let's let's read it here as this verse goes up. Uh, Do not bow down to them. Uh, And then, so He says here, uh, verse, verse 9... I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Ooh, it doesn't sound like words of life right now, right? Uh, But showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's just press into that a little bit because that's worth pressing into. Uh, The first thing to notice is that three to four generations uh, worth is about a lifetime. Uh, In in those ancient times, uh, people would have kids in an age so that you know, as you would get to your old age, there'd be three or four generations within kind of your lifetime that you would see. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, it makes its explicit statement that children are not punished directly because of the sins of their fathers, but we see throughout Scripture that every time Israel make mistakes, the generations that follow live in those mistakes. Now, if you as a parent, for if you're a parent, uh, wreck your life, through stupidity, foolishness, disobedience, whatever, your kids will suffer for that. God's making the statement here that should you disobey me, it will go bad for you. There will be consequences and your kids will live in those consequences. Instead, if you are faithful, if you trust me, if you are devoted to me, you will find blessing. And then it says there, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. A thousand generations. That's more than kind of all of recorded history. A thousand generations is extraordinary. It's such an emphatic statement that God's mercy and love triumphs even over judgment, even over the negative consequences of our action. I hope that sort of puts that in context. God is a jealous God. He cares deeply. He does not want us to betray Him. 
but to live for Him, to be devoted to Him. Commandment number three, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses His name. Hmm. Again, sort of, okay, but then a bit scary. <laughs> I grew up revering God. Uh, I thank God for my parents uh, who, who kind of uh, raised me to know God. And uh, I was a little kind of, you know, in a good way, kind of scared of God, fearful in the way that kind of Scripture talks about holding God in, in such awe. He is God. Now, I sort of knew that, you know, do not use, misuse the name of the God, do not blaspheme. So, you know, I was a good kid, I didn't do that stuff, I didn't uh, say things that, you know, might dishonor God. But I remember there was one night, uh, I was on the, it was, very, it was a very distinct memory, there was one night I was on the athletics track, uh, training in the middle of winter, and uh, we were chatting as we were running around the track, and I quoted South Park to a friend, because I thought it was funny. Uh, and I quoted that, oh my God, they killed Kenny. I was like, oh, I, I just blasphemed. It's like the lights went out on the track for me. I was like, I'm done for. <laughs> that was the first time I'd said OMG, right? And I was just like, no. Uh, now, OMG is kind of like, you know, I don't think we should be saying it. It's sort of baked into culture now. Uh, but, and it's not a good thing that we would say such a thing. But this command goes so much deeper uh, than just rolling off an OMG. Now, when I named my children, uh, Kel and I had a few rules. Um, they were pretty flimsy rules. We didn't want vanilla names, um, so there was no more Michaels. Um, uh, that's pretty vanilla. Uh, <laughs> uh, we didn't want biblical names. Oh, that's... Oh, whatever. Um, uh, too, too many of my friends, particularly at Moore College, were naming their kids, you know, Ezekiel and Melchizedek. No. But... Um, uh, and uh, there was a couple of other ones. But anyway, like, in the end... Callum, we just liked it, you know, that was our first name for our first, firstborn, and we just went with that. Uh, in ancient culture, names meant so much more. They embodied the character and the hopes for that person. Even more so for God, who gave His holy name to Moses and to His people. And as He gave His name to them, He also gave Himself to them. They were bound up in His name. For He is the Lord, Yahweh, He is holy. And so for them to misuse God's name was actually a statement to say, do not dishonor me because you are now part of me and what you do reflects on me. Now, we might be familiar with that concept, even though we're not a shame on a culture per se, uh, you know, there's still a sense that we kind of understand what it might be like to be dishonored because of someone else's actions, uh, whether it's a company you work for, whether it's your own family... Israel were told not to misuse God's name, not to blaspheme, but instead to represent Him. Because these negative commandments also carry kind of a thrust of, of a positive action. They were called to honour Him, to live for Him. Now, I hope you can get getting a sense here as we ground the, this, uh, you know, ethical action in these first commandments. They are rooted in the living God. And it's a really big deal. When I was a youth pastor, uh, there was a kid who came to, uh, to youth towards the end of my time as a youth pastor, and uh, we were sort of summing up kind of what we stood for as a youth group uh, and, and doing some teaching. In fact, we were even teaching from Deuteronomy. And, uh, and this, this kid had sort of come from the fringe and sort of exploring youth. He came up to me at the end of one night and just said, wow, so kind of like Christianity is a really big thing. Like, it's like all of life. We're like, Yeah. <laughs> It's not just kind of a bunch of rules, which is kind of how Christianity and most religions are sort of characterized. We are called into a living relationship to be devoted to the living God. 
who has saved us because of who he is. We are talking about aligning ourselves with that living God that we might represent him. And so that's kind of a bit of a transition commandment as we start to move towards ethical action. And uh, this one here is about the Sabbath. Uh, now, who here likes the weekend? Anyone? Excellent. You have this commandment to thank for that. Uh, it's actually not found anywhere else. And in fact, historians are still kind of scratching their heads as they go back to look to the origin of sort of the Sabbath beyond this, beyond the weekend. Uh, I remember even growing up, uh, the corner store was closed on Sundays. You know, you couldn't do a lot of shopping on Sundays. That, oh man, I feel really old saying that. Uh, but uh, this commandment is really about the rhythm of our life. And it's a rhythm that blesses us and it's a rhythm that honours God. And you'll see both of those in play here. Uh, six days you will work, one day of rest. Now, in verse 15 here, it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Well, why, is, why is God reminding them of what He did for them here? What's that got to do with rest? Well, I think it's got to do with this. I cannot produce satisfaction. Can you? Have you been able to, on your own merits and in your own strength, produce a stable sense of satisfaction in your life? If you have, let me know. I can't manufacture glory. I can't find peace. I only find them in God. And for all the things I do for Him, I need to come back to Him, to be replenished, to be fed, to press into Him. That's why He calls us back to what He has done for us and that even He rested, to sit back and reflect. Rest is good for us. We need it. Our bodies need it. We are created as dependent on Him and we honour Him when we rest. Now, Jesus doesn't reinforce uh, the Sabbath in the Gospels and we don't see sort of that imperative in the New Testament. We're not commanded to do it, and yet there is wisdom in it. And this is why we read the Old Testament to see the bigger context, that the broader wisdom. Okay, so so far we've seen that God is good, he, uh, he is trustworthy, He is worthy of worship over all things, and now we see the shape of His character as we follow His words to love others as He has loved us. And so we move now into commandments five and onwards, which are kind of like if, if they've been about vertical sort of orientation of Godwardness in our ethical action, now we look at horizontal relationships. And the first one here is honour your father and mother uh, as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and so that you may prosper in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, instead of kind of being a negative kind of thing here, like do this, otherwise, if you don't do it, it will go bad for you. Here is kind of like, if you honour your mother and father, it will go well for you in the land. And now all the parents in the room, take note of this, take it home to your kids, put it on the walls. Um, uh, it, is, uh, it is hard to do this. <laughs> Uh, if, you, uh, if you think of kind of like your own uh, sort of early, early years um, and, uh, you know, even just a commandment, you know, you should honour your father and mother. And you're like, oh man, they don't know anything, like, right? <laughs> I've heard it said that if you can show humility to your parents, you can show humility to anyone. Uh, God in His wisdom has made us products of a family. We are brought into this world through a mother and a father 
And we know that families are broken and complicated frequently, and yet there is a, a goodness and orderliness that we are being called into here to honour our mother and father. And again, there are all kinds of reasons why that is really complicated and why, you know, yeah, we just have to sit with that in the brokenness of this world. But God is ordinarily calling us to uh, the pattern in which He has made the world. Now, Jesus, uh, Jesus makes the, the nuclear family much bigger and broader. He calls us into a spiritual family of brothers and sisters. And uh, anyone who does the will of the Father, he says, is my brother and sister. Um, and that is helpful, particularly if we have a really messy and complicated family and where it's very difficult for us, even, even kind of impossible for us to honour our mother and father, we are brought into something bigger. Uh, but God here is starting to trace out the ethical contours of uh, what it means to honour your mother and father as the beginning point, especially for Israel, because as they would move into the Promised Land, it would be kind of the, this new generation that would teach future generations about the living God, to sort of put uh, bumper rails, as it were, on, on the good life so that the next generation would be able to find that good life and live for God, unlike the previous generation that has spent wandering around in the desert because they disobeyed God. Moses here is pleading that they would find the good life and honour God and maintain that for generations to come. Commandment number six, it's quite simple. Three words, do not murder. God's words of life protect life itself. Uh, now, put in the negative, it's protecting something very positive. It's pointing towards a right, a freedom that we ought to enjoy, the right to life, the freedom to go to bed at night knowing that I'm not going to be stabbed in the night. That's a good thing. There are plenty of places in the world where that's not a simple thing. And yet, in the freedoms and peace that we have in this country, we enjoy the good life that this command points towards. God created life. He is for life. He saves us to bring new life. To be aligned with God's Word of life is to uphold and to protect life. This is one of those commandments where you're like, yep, I could do that. But of course, Jesus radicalizes this, doesn't He? He'll say in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, again, some of the most famous ethical teaching in history. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. Of course, referring to this very commandment. But then he goes on to say, do not be angry at another person. Do not call someone a fool. Do not be vengeful. When Jesus speaks to this, he is embodying a radical way of life that even loves our enemy, that doesn't uh, sort of uh, 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 use violence, even violence of words or thought against another person. And when you look to Jesus' words there, at one level you go, I love the vision of life that He is pointing towards. I want to live in a world that there is no hate speech, where people are honoured with words and action. But then you also go, I don't think I'm worthy to be in that space, because I know I'm not like that. But again, we come back to the same grace that, we, that this kind of uh, Ten Commandments begins with, that God saves us first and foremost, and we look to Jesus that while we were enemies, while we were far off, He died for us, that He would give us life. And as we follow Him, are we not transformed more and more to be able to love our enemies like He loved us? I want to align myself with words of life. 
I want to build my life upon the Lord Jesus. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. God's words of life protect marriage and our intimate selves. Now, this one we know is a good thing, uh, but some of us will already be reeling from this unraveling in our life, whether by our own action or by the actions of others. Again, we, we know the goodness of the sanctity of marriage, of maintaining sort of sexual purity to be enjoyed within marriage, and yet this gets complicated really quickly in a broken world and knowing our own broken hearts. And again, Jesus radicalizes this. Even this commandment is, is, you know, is difficult and complicated and messy in life, but Jesus radicalizes this even further when he says this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. <laughs> and so for everyone who said, okay, well, I haven't committed adultery, tick, we come to Jesus. We're like, really, Jesus? <laughs> really? And again, we, when we look to what it's pointing towards, I, I, I want for my kids, I want for myself to live in a world where, where women are not objectified. And I see the disparity between wanting such a beautiful world, where, where people are honoured and not lusted after, and yet I also see how far our world is from that, and how far even my own heart is here. Jesus says no to lust, because He says yes to a better life. He is calling us into something radical and beautiful. How much time have I got? Let me just go a little bit deeper here. Uh, during COVID, the stats for pornography went through the roof. And they went through the roof because people were stuck at home, they were bored and they were lustful. Uh, our human hearts were kind of put under the magnifying glass, as it were, in our ethical action and thought life. If, if you are struggling with porn, or looking at porn, or whatever the case may be, know that Jesus has a better vision for your life, and for the life that you, of the people you're lusting after. There is more to life than instant gratification. Jesus wants us to be aligned with, with Himself, with words of life, with a beautiful vision of the kingdom that we are called into. The same kid that came up to me in a youth a couple of years ago when he said Christianity was big, started talking about his own guilt. When he saw the, the bigness of Jesus, he also recognised ways that he was struggling and failing, and porn was one of them. The average age of exposure to pornography is now 11. I think it's even less, if the number keeps going down the more I research. As we think about these things, our own actions and kind of what we hear about in the world, there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, because God is a God of mercy. And so, yes, there are consequences to our actions. Pornography hardwires and rewires our brain, it messes up relationships, it dishonours people and God. There are consequences to that and yet, as we've already seen, even where there are consequences, 
God's faithful love is shown to a thousand generations to those who trust Him. His mercy triumphs over judgment. There is new life for you. And so, if you are struggling with porn, I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to honour women made in the image of God. And it actually goes both ways here. Men and women are both struggle with pornography, and more so that the sort of the, 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 it's not so kind of different anymore, actually. But friends, brothers and sisters, we are called to better. And I want to call us to that. Commandment number eight, do not steal. And again, this is kind of like maybe a bit of safe, safe ground. You haven't stolen something for a little while, feeling a bit better. Um, you know, our society functions with an ethic of labour, and, uh, and value-adding and payment. And by saying not stealing, again, I'm pointing us to the positive, by saying not stealing, we're actually honouring, kind of working with our hands, uh, adding kind of value to those around us and, and not stripping away from them, doing what is fair and right. Uh, when I was a youth, I, um, I kind of uh, was, I was burning CDs and DVDs. That was all the rage then. Uh, I've, I've not even, I don't have a CD player right now. I don't have a DVD player. But anyway, technology changes. The human heart does not and maybe this isn't the kind of safe ground that you thought you were on. In what ways are you dishonouring the people uh, who are worth paying? Of, uh, of ripping, uh, ripping them off, of stealing? Again, God is calling us to represent Him, and not stealing is a way to honour other people's labours. Moving on, commandment nine, we're almost there. Do not give dishonest testimony against your neighbour. Now, this continues the yes for being people uh, of God, for being in relationships, for trust and justice. Words are important. How quickly things unravel when you can't trust the words of others. Uh, You know, I'm trying to teach my kids this. Uh, You know, lying is a quick shortcut to, uh, to the good life, but it quickly unravels, doesn't it? And particularly when you've got to build a web of lies to kind of maintain your version of, you know, how things are. But again, how much do we want, like really want, to live in a world where we could trust one another, where we could speak the truth in love and put it all out that we might live in a, a sort of in relationship that is built on trust and integrity? And here we go, the last commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, this one finishes with a bit of a corker uh, because if all the commandments sort of speak to action, this one goes straight to the heart. Uh, Covet means to to want to sort of desire uh, something of someone that belongs to someone else as though it were your own. How are you going with that one? Even if we thought we could get through the first nine, which I've already said, we've got Buckley's, this one finishes us off. <laughs> it reveals our heart. It reveals the problem that is our heart. Our heart is like a leaky tank. It, it's constantly draining from being content, heading towards a neediness, a, a wanting. And, uh, you know, of course, this is exploited, this kind of vulnerability of the human heart, this is exploited by a whole industry of marketing and, uh, and advertisement. Uh, if you're in that field, that's fine, um, but uh, it, it's just kind of playing on, on the human heart. Uh, how quickly we go, actually, I, I do want that, and actually, he's got that, 
I want what he's got. Or, or kind of, you might feel a season of contentment only to find that kind of like someone's doing better than you in some way and all of a sudden you're exposed again. What's that about? <laughs> well, it's ultimately about because we're not building our lives in the contentment and peace and life of God. When we start with the first commandment, to not have any other gods beside me, to not live for anything else other than God, it all unravels from there. God is calling us back to Himself, that we might find contentment. And that is so hard, having travelled through all of these commandments, to find just how complicated life is, how messy we are. How are we going to find our way back to God? Even God has a sort of pessimism here, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Just in the previous chapter, Moses himself goes, I know how this is going to go for you guys. You guys are going to go into the promised land, it's going to go bad for you, God's going to judge you, you're going to be scattered, but even then you'll be called back. He knows kind of like how this story is going to go. It's heartbreaking and yet there is a way back. And the way back is the Word of God, Jesus Himself. Because when we look to how Jesus embodied these words of life, we find that Jesus loved the prostitute instead of lusting after her. Jesus loved those He spoke truth to instead of telling them what they wanted to hear. Jesus loved His parents and His new brothers and sisters who did the will of His Father. Jesus loved those who nailed Him to death instead of uh, killing them in His heart. Jesus loved God. Jesus embodied the Ten Commandments, perfected them in a way that we cannot, and He calls us to follow Him. He calls us because of His grace. He gives us His words of life that we might find them renewed day after day. And my hope for each of us in our Christian journey, even though it's kind of going to meander up and down, that we might be able to testify to the goodness of God's Word in our life. That we might be able to see that actually He is good and worth trusting. And that for every time we fail, His mercies are new every morning. Because in Jesus, we have forgiveness, we have life, we have a Saviour who is leading us into all that this points towards, now and forever. Let me pray. Father, in these commandments, we find a beautiful picture of the kingdom life. We also see our heart and our failures, but again, we see your mercy and we see the way that you are calling us day by day to discover more and more all that you have for us. And so we say sorry. So we take up a, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that we might be renewed in our vision, our appreciation, and our experience of your goodness. Amen.